6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Our first priority is knowing the truth about our leadership. Joseph Farah, the founder of World at Daily, has dedicated his life to the idea that the primary mission of a newspaper is to be a watchdog on the government. And that's being challenged as we speak before the Supreme Court. If by some chance that should go against him, it will end free speech in America. If it doesn't go against him, we still have to be selective and recognize those few media that are being faithful to that charge. Because the tragedy is, big money owns most of the mainline media and they have an agenda of their own. And it's not truth. The crucial role of a free press. I encourage you, if you get a chance, to pick up a copy of Stop the Presses by Joseph Farah and you'll discover a chronicle of events that have occurred in recent years that I had no idea. It gives you a whole different perspective of the warfare that's being waged in our country. I personally believe that we are going to see more persecution of Christianity in this country in the future. And I'm not alone in this. J. Vernon McGee, some several decades ago, pointed out that this persecution will probably not include many church members. The liberal church is so compromised today that they will go along with whatever comes along. He even went so far as to suggest that the attack against the true believers going underground will come from the denominational churches. Interesting for a guy that's pretty centerline kind of guy. Moving on to verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. That's God's objective. This is good. The Greek word there for good really means intrinsically good, not just in its effects. Fair and beautiful are almost synonyms of that word. The Pharisees prayed to be praised by men or other worshipers. Make sure that's not you. Be praying to God and what he's all about. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3, 16, we all know it, of course. God's desire is that all men come to the knowledge of salvation through faith in Christ. Let's keep that, let's remember that. Let's come that in front of us. That's, strangely enough, a refutation of some Calvinistic ideas. His desire is that all men come. But there is an issue of personal will volition here. But here's a key verse in 1 Timothy 2.5, one of those you may want to memorize. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Very fundamental. All prayer is based on the work of Jesus Christ as Savior and mediator. There is only one God. There is therefore a need for only one mediator, Jesus Christ. No other person can qualify. No angels, not saints, not Mary. Let's understand that. Not very pleasant to some, but there it is in the Word of God. 
Well understood. One mediator. And, and interestingly enough, the trans, there's a no definite article before man in the Greek that suggests the translation Christ Jesus himself man. Okay, there's no definite, the, definite, the lack of definite articles even makes it more definite in a sense. But anyway, let's go on. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The word ransom, what does that mean? What is given in exchange for another as the price of his redemption, thus ransom. Christ paid the full price for our redemption. He paid the full price of our redemption. I want to contrast this with what I'll call the gospel of Barabbas. Barabbas stood under the righteous condemnation of the law. He was justly accused. And he knew the one who was to take his cross and take his place was innocent. He knew that. Barabbas knew that Jesus Christ was for him a true substitute. Barabbas knew that he had done nothing to merit going free while this other guy took his place. Barabbas knew Christ's death was for him completely efficacious. It, it sufficed to work. You with me? Why am I going through all this? Because we're in Barabbas' shoes. Barabbas and Jesus changed places. The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace, and mortal agony were transferred to the righteous Jesus. While the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the immaculate Nazarene became the lot of the murderer. Barabbas is installed in all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, while the latter enters upon all the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. Both mutually inherit each other's situation and what they possess. They train places. The delinquent's guilt and cross became the lot of the just one. And all the civil rights and immunities of the latter and the, are the property of the delinquent. Why am I going through this? Because you and I are in Barabbas' shoes. We're guilty. We've done nothing to deserve it. Christ has done it all, taken our place. This is a summary from a book on the subject by John Larson, The Six Tribes of Jesus. Continuing Paul's letter, Whereunto I am ordained as a preacher... And apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. He just, obviously, Timothy knows that. He's just calling that to his attention. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. He's a preacher. What does that wordy word mean? A herald, a messenger, vested in public authority, who conveyed the official messages of kings. That's what the term really meant. Magistrates, princes, military commanders. These are a special authorized messengers, what we're talking about, who gave public sermons on demand and performed various other duties. In the New Testament, of course, it's an ambassador, a herald, a proclaimer of the divine world. That's the preacher. But he also says, I'm an apostle. What's an apostle? A delegate messenger, one sent from forth with orders, specifically applied to the 12 apostles of Christ. In a broader sense, they sometimes include eminent Christian teachers such as Barnabas, Timothy, and Silvanus, or Silas. Continuing, verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. And not many of you raise up your hands when you preach. And some people here, when they see you do that, will have cardiac arrest, you know. There are lots of different ways. The important thing is not your hands or your knees, it's your heart. Where's your heart? Holy hands, holy life is what it's supposed to represent. Clean hands, clean life, blameless life. And without wrath, without anger, in other words. And, uh, and without doubting or doubting in faith. 
Because remember what Hebrews says? Hebrews 11.6, another one you want to memorize. But, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Rewards, there they are again. God rewards. God rewards. There are many postures of praying in the Bible, by the way. Standing with outstretched hands in 1 Kings 8. Kneeling in Daniel 6. Standing in Luke 18. Sitting in 2 Samuel 7. Bowing the head in Genesis 24. Lifting the eyes in John 17. That's what Jesus did to his father. Falling on the ground in Genesis 17. Those many postures. Whatever suits. Whatever suits. Continuing verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, embroidered or plated, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. See, you don't have to cover your head with a blanket and come in, in a hood, Tracy. That's, that's okay. You don't have to do that, you know. Just thought I'd relieve you of that concern, you know. Glamour is external, godliness is internal. Beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes clear to the bone, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now, I'm kidding around here a little bit, but let's go on here. Let's talk about First Peter as a passage that's just as troublesome as this one, First Peter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Ooh. Most of the girls are just about ready to stand up and get out of here. It's going to be one of those things. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conver conversation, that's the old English word, or behavior, if you will, of the wives, while they behold your chaste con conversation coupled with fear. The word conversation there occurs twice is, of course, the old English term for what we would say today is behavior. Likewise, be in subjection, why, to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won. By, the, by your behavior. That's, that's the objective there. Okay? With adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, of wearing gold, or putting on a, of apparel, but let it be hidden, the, the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of the meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, Adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now the feminists would have you believe that these views of Paul and Peter, both, are simply outdated. But I'll suggest to you that they come from the Word of God. You need to deal with that. This isn't just Pauline. That's one reason I drew on the Peter passage also. The word adorn, to arrange, put in order, cosmeo, arrange and put in order. Modest, cosmeos, well arranged, related to the Greek word um, cosmos, which means to bring order out of chaos. Same root that we get the word cosmetics from, to bring order out of chaos, right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that, yes. Okay. Sobriety. Having, having a sound mind, self-control, good sense. These are the Greek terms there. Braided hair. A term that can generally mean hairstyles, by the way. Not just braided, but they're really using a term that really means hairstyles. Costly garments. You're Pliny the Elder, first century Roman historian. Described the dress of Lolia Paulina, the wife of Emperor Caligula. 
which was worth several hundred thousand dollars by today's standards. You see, you thought the designers, designer gowns were something recent. No, they go back a bit, I think. Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, described a prostitute as wearing gold chains, bracelets, hair done up in elaborate and gaudy braids, eyes marked with pencil lines, eyebrows smothered in paint, and wearing expensive clothes lavishly embroidered. And uh, anyway... Continue in Timothy, verse, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Now, submission is not subjection, by the way. You need to understand that. The word subjection or submission literally means to rank under, which has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. It's like a military rank. The highest ranks aren't the smartest guys. They're just... Outranking, someone's in charge. And that's the concept that's operative here. And uh, so we must never underestimate the role of godly women throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see Deborah, Ruth, Queen Esther, and many others. Deborah declined to lead the military campaign against the Canaanites, deferring to Barak. She's very instrumental, but Barak was in charge because it was a military operation. Women had a very low place in Roman society, but the gospel changed all that. Jesus first revealed his Messiahship to a woman, John 4, woman by the well. Only a woman recognized his announcement of his forthcoming death in John 12 and Matthew 16. Women were at the cross. In fact, they were the first to herald the news of the resurrection. That's kind of exciting. They have a role. But Paul goes on to say, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And he's going to explain what, that means, what that's going to mean here. Here he's interpreting the meaning of verse 11. He defines exactly what he means by women staying quiet in the worship services. To teach. It really means to be a teacher. It was an office. Not just thought they were teaching. It was an office to, be, to teach. And he's using the present infinitive rather than the errorist infinitive. Paul does not forbid women to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances, but not to fulfill the office and role of pastor or teacher in the life of the church. That's what he's talking about. Nothing wrong with women teaching, but that's different than assuming the authority because God has an appointed order for that. Women are permitted to teach. Older women to teach the younger. Titus 2 will talk about that. Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother. Best example we can find. There's nothing wrong with a woman instructing a man in private. I get a great deal of help from my wife. Nan helps me all the time. She's done a year's worth of research behind some things that we're writing. And uh, very, very helpful. But a woman should not try to take the place of a man in the structure of the church. Adam was first formed, then Eve. This is an argument from creation itself. And Paul uses the same argument in 1 Corinthians 11 on the same flavor. You need to understand that. You know, it's interesting. I just got back from my 50th reunion at the Naval Academy. And as you probably are well aware, that the service academies now have girls in the, in the student body. And uh, that may be great, but it totally abrogates the mission of the academy. Because uh, when they, when they, the day will come when they will need an officer corps. They'll discover they don't have one. 
Hitler inherited one of the finest officer corps in the history of man. The Prussian, four or five generations deep of great strategic specialists. And he was stupid enough not to use them. I'm glad he was that stupid. But his officer corps, uh, the fact that he didn't lean on them was favorable to our purpose. It would have been crushing him. There is a skill and a tradition and a, a fiber that occurs in a combat unit that doesn't mean that women can't be in combat, but they are a distraction and they are at jeopardy for a variety of reasons. Not because of anything they do, but by, by the, the response of others. Anyway, that's a big debate. It, I, I personally hold the view that they've, they've destroyed the long gray line of West Point. They've destroyed 150 years of tradition at the academy. It's now simply a government-sponsored college. And uh, that's well and good, but the day will come that we will reap the world with. In any case, Adam was first formed, then Eve is, is the scriptural argument. It's chronology. It's not a question of who's better. It's, it's, one came first. Priority does not mean superiority. It does mean precedence. There's a concept of rank in the military, and we're dealing in a combat situation here. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. How interesting. First Timothy 2.14, an extremely profound insight. Eve was deceived by Hasatan, by the, the uh, shining one. Adam was not deceived. Boy, that's heavy. Adam knew what he was doing and thus bears the responsibility, heavier than Eve. The woman being deceived was in the transgression, but Adam was not deceived. Indulge me a little bit here, if I may. Imagine it was you and I, guys. We're still clothed with light. We're absolutely sinless. We've walked with God. We seem to have been gone for the moment. When we get home, we discover that our bride has really blown it. I assume she's no longer clothed with light. I assume that she's, well, she's sinned. No longer perfect. And the conversation would probably go something like this. Boy, kid, are you in trouble. I'm still okay, but you are really, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. But man, you're in trouble. I'm sure, I'm clear at this point, right? No, that's not the way it went. Adam knew what he was doing. He loved Eve so much that he chose to join her in her predicament rather than to go on without her. Boy, 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 boy. One of the, cradles, one of the titles of our Messiah is the last Adam, in contrast to the first Adam. Adam, thus, was in a certain sense of speaking an anticipatory type of Christ. Because by, by giving himself for her, that created the offspring which created the messianic line that provided the means of redemption by which she'd ultimately be saved. So the last Adam is an echo of that, who gave himself for his bride that she might live. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not condoning Adam's sin. I'm just suggesting that he became sin for her. And that's exactly the phrase Paul used of Jesus Christ, in that Christ became, was made sin for us. We have no idea what that means. We have no grasp of what that means. This is an argument from the fall. We had an argument from creation. Adam was created first. Now we have an argument by Paul from the fall. Satan deceived the woman into sinning. Man sinned with his eyes wide open. He's the senior of the two. God's order. The disorder we have in our society today results from a violation of the God-given order. That's the God has a plan. Both men and women are gullible and easily deceived. Abraham listened to his wife and got into trouble in Genesis 16. Later, it was her counsel it was what God told him to obey through him. So we got a chain of command from the husband on down. You got a chain of counsel going the other way. Verse 15, notwithstanding, speaking of the gal, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. And, now, uh, and, and so the word saved here means isn't saved like theologically. It's to rescue or preserve, to keep unharmed, to heal, deliver from. It appears frequently in the New Testament without reference to spiritual salvation. When you see that word saved, it doesn't necessarily mean salvation in the theological sense. Do you follow me? I was saved from a burning building last week. In other words, it had nothing to do with theology. It has to do with being rescued somehow. The girl's primary ministry is home and the family. And women are far from being second-class citizens because they have the primary responsibility for rearing godly citizens. You know, it was interesting. We got an interesting discussion at the conference um, that we just came from, um, talking about the election. We were talking about the election. And Joseph Farah made an interesting remark. Why are we so, you know, uh, uh, then it was George Wallace uh, 100 years ago that said that there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. That's not that big a deal. You know what the most important vote you have to cast? Much more than that. Where are you going to send your kids to school? Are you going to send them to a government school? Heaven help you. For a lot of reasons. Are you, are you, the, the choice of where you send them, are you going to send them to a, 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 a secular college? Are you going to send them to Patrick Henry or, or Liberty, one of the Christian colleges? Or better, are you going to homeschool? What a commitment. But that's the only godly form of biblical teaching there is. Homeschooling. And boy, is that the bright spot in America. There is a groundswell of young people that are brilliant, that are acing all the tests. The big universities, Harvard, Stanford, they go for the homeschoolers because they're statistically yards ahead of the rest. They're proven to be the, an outstanding product. What a choice. What a commitment, but what a choice. Okay, for our next session, I want you to read two chapters. Chapters three and four as we work our way through these pastoral epistles. Letters by Paul to his protégés. And you can consider them pastors. That's the idiom in which they speak. But remember, these were pastors of home churches. They weren't uh, crystal cathedrals. They weren't, you know, 20,000 person whatevers, you know. Um, these are home churches. Churches as we think of churches didn't get invented until the 4th century. We're talking here, 1st century. Homes. Some of them got quite large, relatively speaking, apparently. But we're talking homes. 
When Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, it wasn't to the church at Rome, it was to the believers in Rome. You have something like 33 home churches alluded to there. And maybe more. So you are a valid addressee for Paul's letters because you'll be facing these issues and um, face them prayerfully and compare Scripture with Scripture and uh, avoid one-verse theology but seek the whole counsel of God but use these letters as one of the most practical and direct guides in our possession. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The Apostle Paul, a fascinating guy to really get to know. Incredibly bright, incredibly well-educated, incredibly committed. A fascinating guy to really get to know. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his example. We thank you for his work product. We thank you, Father, for using him in such a mighty way. But above all, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that has compiled and protected and provided these documents for our learning, for our reproof, for our correction, and for instruction in righteousness. We thank you, Father, for the richness of this treasure you've given us. And Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would indeed open our hearts and lives to your word, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord, that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you've put before us. Help us, Father, to discover precisely what it is you would have of each of us in the days that remain. We thank you, Father, for your presence, your protection, your provision. And above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who made all this possible. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.